Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host Alan Tolhurst, and with me for a special live episode from the Conservative Party Conference in Birmingham are three fantastic guests, the former Brexit Minister Lord Frost, ex-Northern Ireland Environment Secretary Theresa Villiers, and the MP for Rotland and Mellon, and member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Alicia Cairns. So, just to quote Kwasi Kwarteng, what a day. Uh, we've had cabinet ministers briefing against number 10 for reversing the abolition of 45p tax rates, you know, accusations from ministers about backbenchers attempting a coup, confusion over just when exactly the fiscal statement will take place. So I'll ask you all, how exactly is conference going for you guys? Well, I mean, I think certainly the, the headlines coming out of the conference are not the ones we would have wanted. But what I feel very strongly about is we have a plan. It is all about growing the economy. We are all agreed how vital it is to grow the economy. We've got to make this plan work. And that does require unity. Yes, we're always going to have our debates, particularly when we're dealing with such difficult circumstances as we are at the moment. I mean, the the economy has been subject to extreme shocks as a result of global events. So inevitably, there will be differences of view. But we have just chosen a new prime minister we need to back her and her plan if we don't do that there's no chance of us winning the general election yeah lord frost you wrote last week that um it's not been a great start the government must raise its game and fast do you think it has so far i I still think there's a a little bit to do and um (laughs) the government has got the right plan you know that we need to to move to growth that means a different kind of balance in the economy and a different way of looking at the way we run economic policy but the problem is nobody has talked about free markets and how they work much for 10 or 15 years people are not familiar with the arguments and you can't just kind of land this stuff and expect people to to go along with it my worry is that there hasn't been enough explanation, there hasn't been enough setting out what we are trying to do and why, and that's why some of these difficulties have emerged and, and possibly will continue to be around. Yeah, uh, you, uh, Penny Morden said earlier this week that it wasn't necessarily a policy problem, that it was perhaps a communications problem. I wondered mm. what you'd made of some of those policies. Obviously, we've seen abolition of the 45p tax return being abolished. I just wondered what you'd made of some of that and whether you think it is necessarily a policy issue or if it is as, as Lord Frost points out maybe perhaps a, a lack of rolling the pitch and preparing people for some of these changes that the government were bringing in. I think it is primarily about rolling the pitch ahead of time but also some of the things we've seen announced are the opposite of upholding our manifesto commitments which is exactly what Liz said she's doing the leadership. Yeah. She said there'd be 30 billion in tax cuts, 120 billion in tax cuts is quite something different. We said we wouldn't be going to back to fracking, we are going back to fracking. It is about communications and I think under Boris we saw that he didn't always bring the party with him and that was a big conversation about changing the people around him because they weren't making sure he was engaging with colleagues. It's a bit difficult to see the same problem happening again. But I think one of the really important things is that you know, we only govern with the support and respect of our country, of our people. And so we do need to bring them with us. And you can't just bounce people into things. And we are at a unique time in that people are scared. And all MPs see in their inboxes how scared people are. And when people are scared dogmatism and particularly free market dogmatism can really scare people particularly when they need to see pragmatism compassion but most of all fiscal responsibility so i'm not saying that necessarily the policies were necessarily all wrong but you do it's about how you present it to make sure people feel that you're on their side and that you are bringing them with them and i see what liz was doing she was showing i'm going to break orthodoxy i'm going to smash things up we're going to do things differently and we are going to grow things 
But the markets weren't ready, the party wasn't ready, and I'm not sure the country were ready based on what we've seen. So you've just got to roll the pitch. Theresa, would you, would you agree with that? Do you think that it's, it is partly to do with not preparing perhaps people for quite the, the shock that it would take and perhaps not preparing the markets necessarily for the shock of, of everything that was announced sort of all in one go in, in Kwasi's statement, which feels like a lifetime ago, but was only 10 days ago now. What, what are your thoughts on that? There was an element of that. And of course there is a tension because any, any new prime minister, a new government wants to immediately be starting to provide solutions to the, to the big issues we face as a country. And particularly when the circumstances are so extreme as they are with you know, the, the threat imminently of energy bills potentially reaching sort of three, four or even five thousand pounds. So, I mean, they did have to act quickly. And that is enormously welcome in the sense of, you know, the reassurance that you know, a typical household is, is not going to be paying more than about two and a half thousand. That's still a lot for an energy bill, but... Twice what it was you know, last winter, at, probably. At least the kind of terror of the excessive you know, huge increases we're being talked about has been dealt with as a result of a very swift intervention. But, yes, doing it at speed has had some disadvantages, though what I would point out is there's been turbulence around many currencies... The dollar's been strong against every major currency. And, you know, very sadly, we've, you know, the era of cheap money was going to come to an end. Central banks right across the developed world are raising interest rates. So the, the kind of tumult that we saw following the Chancellor's statement was absolutely by no means just cause. It was a contributory factor that uh, the markets weren't ready for that statement. But it would certainly not, I wouldn't even say that it was the primary cause of these problems. These causes are much more complex and diverse than just one statement by the Chancellor. On the political side of it, Lord Frost, you said that, you know, the government must hold their nerve. Are you disappointed that they didn't on the 45p? Uh, Obviously, they they acted on Sunday night into Monday, perhaps to try and cut off a, a row or a rebellion on that. But obviously, that brings its own sort of problems as well. Yeah, I, I mean, once you've made a mistake, there's, there's, it's always problematic to work out the best way out of it. And, you know, perhaps this was the best way out of it, though it creates a further set of, of difficulties. But if you can't get something through, you can't get something through. I think the problem is that, you know, the energy package was necessary. Reversing the tax increases was necessary. The 45p rate and the other things was highly desirable but not necessary. And I think a bit more thought would probably have brought us to that conclusion and avoided these difficulties. And it mustn't happen again. That's the worry for me. Sure. Uh, Alicia, obviously, looks like there's probably another brewing rebellion on benefits, following suggestions that the government would raise in by the rate of earnings rather than in line with inflation, which might lead to sort of some big real terms cuts. What, what have you made of that, and what do you want to see from the government after this kind of the problems they've had this week? What do you think they need to send a signal now that they are going to stick to those that inflation? rises. I mean, look, realistically, you know, none of us want to see inflation get worse. We, as Conservatives, have to have the tough arguments when people are asking for constant pay rises, and we have to make the point about if we keep just raising wages, we all know what will happen. The rice milk goes up, then the farmer's bill goes up. It all becomes a nightmare. But on benefits, I do think it should rise in line with inflation. And that, again, was another one of the problems, though, is that you had on one side the party seeming to present a mini-budget that was releasing bankers' bonuses as a Brexit dividend, releasing the 45p, 
and then saying, but we're going to cut benefits and we're going to cut services. And that, of course, was going to give, you know, the opposition a, a free, you know, a yeah. free goal. And that's the problem is we shouldn't be giving them free goals. And yes, we should do what's right and we should be proud to do what's right. But it's also about doing what's right when we can, when it's appropriate and when we can land it in a way that doesn't end with we have to keep conservatives in government. That is our foremost priority because that is how our people are safe. That is how people can grow. That's how our economy can grow, how people can create their own futures. We cannot put that at risk by not pitch rolling. And yes, we have to make sure that we do what's right in terms of benefits. And on interest rates, I am worried, though, because everyone's talking about, oh, you know, the plan for Liz in terms of the budget was that interest rates would increase. But then that's businesses aren't going to invest. They're not going to borrow. They're not going to grow because they're going to say, well, interest rates are too high for me. We're in a bit of a catch-22. We do want growth, but what does growth look like under this government? And that's why the markets were spooked, because they need to know what it is. The markets, I've heard some people walking around saying, the markets are very woke, the markets are very left. <laughs> markets are not about <laughs> any of these things. You know, we have to bring them with us, um, and we do have to flesh out. But I think Quasi wants to, but he needs to get cracking on fleshing that out. Yeah, I think that was kind of the, the I think the issue was that the mini-statement was really a kind of a... A push for growth, a gamble on growth, but it didn't feel as though enough people believed the government they were going to be able to push for that growth. And it's not just a, a British thing. Lots of Western countries have found growth difficult to come by in the past decade. You know, what do you want to see? We've got this potentially sort of next fiscal statement on November 23rd or maybe earlier potentially with a promise of lots of supply side reforms. I mean, A, do you think that explaining supply side reforms, what they mean is, is kind of important, but also what do you think they need to be for them to actually you know, secure that growth or, or secure people thinking that growth is going to happen? Clearly, we need to set out a clear plan to get back to debt falling as a proportion of GDP. Our balance sheet going into this crisis was, thankfully, it was relatively strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, something like almost, I think it was the third best in the G7. So we do have the capacity to borrow more money and still stick with a credible plan to get the public finances back in order in the medium term, but we do have to set out that plan. I mean, one of the key things that David Cameron and George Osborne did very well, I think, is to to, to generate that confidence in what they were doing when they were looking at you know extremely difficult circumstances with the public finances. But you're correct, I think there is a need to start sort of providing some indications about this supply-side reform. And I think we do need to learn a little, uh, some lessons from this week on supply-side reform. It's great for economists, but the reality is it can be very difficult to do, it can take a long time, and it be, can be politically very painful. Mm. And one area I'll be watching very carefully is planning reform. Yeah. I accept that there are ways in which we could probably make our planning system work better. But personally, I, I believe the government shouldn't go down the route of, of ripping up environmental protections or undermining local decision-making in planning because we have a duty to conserve our environment, not least the local environment in our constituencies. And I've been in an ongoing dialogue with the government <laughs> on its past attempts at planning reform, yeah. I really hope that they can come up with something that works. But, isn't but they that do for, need for to years. engage with backbenchers before they decide what they're going to do, because we do not want another situation where a plan is announced on a particular aspect of policy and it doesn't have the backing of the parliamentary party. Right, but isn't that kind of the problem is that planning reform has been something that, you know, we want fourth prime minister in 
12 years, whatever, you know, they've all come in and said they're going to do planning reform and then they can't get it, get it through. You know, a party that's not able to even get through a cut in tax, as we've seen in the U-turn, do you think it's likely they're going to be able to get through serious planning reforms in the next sort of six months, given everything else that's going on? Well, it depends what sort of planning reforms they want to get through, but a very radical planning reform would be a lot harder to get through the parliamentary party, I think, even the, the changes to the 45p tax rate. So we need to work together to come up with something that we can all get behind, which will, which will accelerate the delivery of, of new homes and new infrastructure, but not at the expense of concreting over you know, the greenfields of our country, because we do not want to repeat the mistakes of the 60s and 70s. And actually, you say that previous governments haven't succeeded on planning reforms. Well, they've, they've changed the system in, in relatively subtle and low-profile ways to drive up the targets, to make it harder and harder for local councils to reject the development. That has meant that we're almost 300,000 houses built last year, I think. So it has, it has delivered more homes, but at, at a very high environmental price. Mm. And I just think that we should take away from this conference that the lesson that let's reflect and discuss amongst ourselves how these reforms are going to work before they become official government policy announced at the dispatch box. I have to say, first of all, Therese has been an absolute superstar on all things planning, and she has really managed to bring the party together uh, in a real sense of unity, actually, in her position. But I think the key thing is, we want this to succeed. Yeah. I think everyone at conference wants Liz to succeed. The whole country wants Liz to succeed. We want to grow. Uh, we want to get through this crisis. But that's down to her. And with the parliamentary party, there is a lot of work to do. Her and Quasi have shown they'll listen. They've reversed the 45p. They are listening. That's what they're saying. But look at the low attendance of MPs at conference. You know, this should be Liz's crowning glory, her celebration. All of her ministers should want to be here. They're not. She knows she needs to unify the party because she's got the lowest support any prime minister has ever come in with from both the membership and parliamentary colleagues. Now, these are hurdles for her, but they're not insurmountable. She can overcome them, but it needs heavy engagement with backbenchers, with colleagues to work out what they need, what team means. Because again, with the appointments... Boris had a third, I think, of MPs who didn't back him within his ministerial appointments. Liz has nine, right. I think. That doesn't necessarily scream team to everyone. And some of us, I knew I wasn't going to get anything, so that's not a problem. So you don't <laughs> feel downhearted when you've got nothing to lose. But that team point hasn't been what people have felt so far. So Jacob is one of the most courteous colleagues, Jacob Rees-Mogg, that we have in Parliament. But in the fracking debate, he essentially called a colleague a philistine if they wanted to oppose fracking. Now, that's not a party that's listening to itself. So I think Liz has a lot of hurdles, and they are not easy anyway. But, you know, it's totally doable to overcome them. Love bomb the party, talk to the party, show us the goals, show us what she wants to achieve, bring the party on board with the growth agenda, and then we can all crack on and get on with it. But yes, there are problems with colleagues who seem to think that being a rent-a-quote conservative MP said is a good idea, or going out on the media being, you know, the star of the day is a great thing. It's frustrating. But then on the other side, we also don't need to see ministers saying this is a coup because well, coup has very specific yeah. language and it's not appropriate to use. Yeah, and we saw obviously uh, Swallow Bregman say that, you know, to support the members of our party staged a coup and undermine the PM in an unprofessional way. I mean, she's been criticised by her cabinet colleague, Kane Badnock, who said that language is too inflammatory. Uh, Lord yeah. Foss, what did you make of those, the, the coup comments today? Well, on that, I, I think it probably is best if, if people just try and keep the temperature down slightly. <laughs> yes. I don't think it, it, it really 
necessarily helps but but that seems to be the atmosphere we are in can i just come back on this point about you know what's what the economic agenda yeah of course obviously the government's got to set out its agenda this coming month that's clear they've got to hang an obr report on that i worry that the government's kind of staked its future on getting a credible OBR report when we know that you know the OBR's record is actually not brilliant uh, it takes it takes a very conservative view of the relationship between structural reform and growth and incentives and growth and I, I worry they'll get something that is not going to help but by then it will be too difficult to move away from it so that is a problem that is coming up and and needs to be tackled what do they need to do they need to set out three things spending control i think that is relatively easy and i agree with the literature on benefits as i've said today for now structural reform you've got to choose the easy things and you know some things are easier than others some things produce a counter coalition much more quickly than others financial services reform solvency too does not produce a particular counter coalition we should get on with that more liberal trade policy i think does not produce counter coalition etc etc obviously i'm afraid we must do planning reform i don't think it's something we should rush at in these two years but obviously we've got to find something that the party can can get behind so i think a bit of prudence in how we tackle these things without letting that derail us from the direction of travel that is necessary essential to recover the country is is really important and finally we we must explain why a more normalised monetary policy is necessary. And, and here I, I think I, I disagree a bit, possibly, Adisha. We do need higher interest rates. You can't operate free market economies with sub-zero interest rates. That's one of the reasons why we have weak productivity and malinvestment over the years. But it takes time to explain that. It is, not, it is a bit counterintuitive. And we must do it in a way that doesn't scare people. And we must be clear that, you know, we're not suddenly going to see massive, massive increase. But it must happen because it's part of the reform programme and we will not get better productivity and more growth unless we tackle that problem. But it's it worth of the government has, has pushed for more people to own their own houses. And I think it's about four and a half million people have had a mortgage since 2008. So they've only known cheap money, as Theresa mentioned it. You know, how do you then explain to those four million people that sort of stretched and have now got low interest mortgages that suddenly those mortgages are going to shoot up in the next couple of years so i mean it depends what you mean by shoot up i mean we're, we're talking about interest rates going up a couple of points perhaps i don't know over the next 12 months or so much less what you might than what you might expect when you've got inflation at nine or or ten percent you have to look at the total picture the energy package has been a massive uh, sort of subsidy if you like to everybody in the country albeit in, in extremely difficult circumstances and you know at some point we must normalize it just must happen if it doesn't happen, we don't get this rebalancing of economic policy, we will not grow. We will not recover productivity. It will not happen. Therefore, the, the question is, how do we make the politics work to deliver the things that are necessary? And that means explaining, explaining, persuading, taking the time, choosing your battles and getting on a different path. Yeah, just on the party unity stuff, I think, um, Theresa, you know, you were in government, in government and you understood collective responsibility and, and does it feel as though perhaps the trust has lost a bit of that discipline already with you know some cabinet ministers saying things going beyond their brief perhaps penny more than about the benefits and that sort of stuff do you think that she needs to not just bring the party together but perhaps bring her cabinet together already 
Well, I, was, I have to say, I was a bit taken aback with uh, the freelancing cabinet ministers. <laughs> Theresa May was sort of had had that problem over many months. She did, but, yes. Uh, e- even Mrs. May had a, a sort of a year or so when uh, she had a relative degree of unity from her government. So. We certainly do live in astonishing times, but I, I would always encourage the members of our cabinet to have their to have their debates internally and not not to uh, not to leak cabinet discussions or or to express their. It would be very fun for people like me though if, if nothing ever leaks out of cabinet though to be honest. Uh, Alicia, on that you talked about the, again go back to the, the party unity thing. What doubling down on these policies is probably not going to go down well with lots of MPs. But she obviously is, she's created a government already. She can't suddenly hire a load of people who support Rishi Sunak or other people into ministerial roles. You know, what else can she do perhaps to bring MPs along with her as she, you know, pushes through what are going to be quite difficult reforms to try and get through? I mean, look, it's going to be an incredibly difficult time for us to get through anyway. Also, there will be people who fundamentally disagree with her, you know, borrowing to fund tax cuts. Not all of us agree that that is a good thing. I know my constituency, my association do not, and I've had that... A lot of phone calls over the last few days about this, but we uh, should be able to disagree on policy and come forward, come together behind our leader. Look, this is this is what every parliamentarian's job is to do. You know, Theresa will have had incredibly difficult briefs in the past where she needs to bring colleagues in the room and convince them they're being listened to. You know, most of us know that when there's somebody who's unhappy, if you just show them you're listening, show them you want to find a ground where they can come with you and they can come behind you and convince them of what you're doing, they will do it. Don't get me wrong, you know, Her Majesty's death, that was 10 days in which the government wasn't able to engage with us. So, you know, I recognise that. But one call with Kwasi Kwarteng about the mini-budget and then us all being told to stop sending WhatsApps does not tell us that we should be engaging meaningfully. I have to say, his PPS Mark Fledger is exceptional and is there to reach out. But it's very hard to build back. So if you've already set a reputation or a feeling amongst colleagues that you're not going to engage, you're not going to want to listen... That's very hard to come back from, but I think she can. And it's all about your whips office. You know, get your whips office out, get your PPSs out, one-to-one conversation. Every single MP should be being brought into number 10 to have a conversation, not with the SPADs. I think we need to really deal with the issue of SPADs within government. Special advisors who run around, who've been out of university for two years and think it's for them to decide what government policy is and what is or isn't good. And they brief out against each other. A lot of the stuff you see, or this camp said this or this camp said that, it's special advisors. Last night at the Sky Party, there were more special advisors than there were MPs. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a real issue, and it heightens tensions between colleagues when actually if we brought them in the room, they were sat together talking, they'd be a far more decent because actually most of our colleagues are incredibly decent people who want to have conversations no matter how much they disagree on policy. So they just need to love bomb, and they need to get them in the office, and they need to be having conversations seriously and also understanding what are the priorities for colleagues because we don't need a policy agenda on stuff beyond the economy that is not in line at all with what we need to see from our constituents so it it can be done but it requires the work and the will Lord Foster so you're nodding along there what are are your thoughts on that I was sort of nodding in um, slight disagreement oh okay Uh, um, (laughs) that's fine that's fine I don't mind that as well break a record of a lifetime (laughs) reflective nodding I I, I mean no that's not quite fair I agree and I disagree um, on the spats point that's really what I was thinking of I don't disagree with the general point that you of course much more reaching out needs to be done I do think that there need to be more spats in government not 
fewer. I think they're the few the allies of ministers to get things done. But I do think you know the profile of Spads as sort of twenty five year olds who've you know only been at university and only done politics. It is important to get away from that. I mean, I was a spad before I with for Boris, both in the Foreign Office and in Number Ten, and other people are. And it's perfectly possible to bring in as political supporters, allies to a minister, people who know things and want to get things done, and are not just interested in briefing. If they do, which is not what we're seeing. Well, that's no, the I agree. You've got that's to when you were in people. Ministers you know. have to choose the right people. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely true. Can yeah. I? Yes, can I? shockingly come in in favour of spads as well. Oh, this is interesting. <laughs> okay, sure. I have had a number of spads during my time in government and, and they've all been exceptional. I, I particularly single out Jonathan Kane, who's now a minister at the Northern Ireland office and he, is, mm. he did the spad role on and off for about 20 years or so. He, he's, he's just plays a tremendously positive role in, in moving Northern Ireland forward. But there are, unfortunately, some spads that that can be quite malevolent. Obviously, Dominic Cummings was a, a controversial character, divisive from all sorts of perspectives. I tended not to find him terribly helpful sure. when I was uh, in Cabinet. But I would emphasise that there are many, many spads who just work their fingers to the bone to deliver what the government wants to deliver. And as, as David says, very often in government, you do feel like you're, you're sort of, you're surrounded by civil servants, many of whom are very supportive, but very often the departmental ideology is just not, is, is pulling in a different direction and having your sort of spad comrades around you to help you push through what the government needs to do is, is important. And just don't get me wrong, I'm, you know, we have special advisors for a reason, but I've also been a civil servant and I have seen special advisors briefing against junior ministers in, to the media in order to protect their Secretary of State who just didn't like them. Look at Theresa May's issues that she had with her spads. There are too many times where we see spads causing issues. And the whole point is that we don't have enough who come in having had real-world experience. You talk to me about how many spads within business, and I don't know who Jacob's hired, so they could be glorious and wonderful. But tell me how many of them have any experience in running an SME and what the pressures are of keeping people in employment, keeping a roof over people's heads, the duty and responsibility you feel in that role how many people in the foreign office spads and again i don't know who they've hired i'll soon find out but you know can understand diplomacy have been there in the nitty-gritty all have served their country and understand what it means i think we need to hire the right people it isn't say we shouldn't have them and yes we need them because you are under attack and i've also seen civil servants try to outmaneuver ministers and spads can be very helpful but we need to get it right and yeah. they are not a substitute for ministers talking to their own people. Oh, that, that is right. I think one thing we need to give Liz credit for, she has done a big clear out. The team of spads is almost entirely different to, uh, to, to those under her predecessor, <laughs> which I think is that change is a breath of fresh air. We talk about lots of problems that the, the government are facing, that the Conservative Party are facing, obviously, a long way back in several of the polls that have come out. I was talking to the panel before, and I was at Labour conference last week, and there was sort of quite an, an air of, if not triumphalism but a sense that they were on the path towards power you know do you think in this two years Liz Truss is going to be able to do enough to turn that turn the tanker around and, and I think maybe you know what, what can she do to perhaps to move that stuff in, in, their, in your favour? 
I mean, two and a half years. Look what's happened the last two and a half yeah. years. Did you all think I was going to lock you in your homes and not let you leave them? <laughs> and did you think we would then see war in Ukraine and see Britain be the foremost guarantor of European security alongside America? Our European allies didn't think we were post-Brexit. You know, things change in politics. I think, well, probably, Theresa, I imagine if you're the same as me, when I get an email from my constituent on a policy announcement we've just made, I don't let us reply for 10 days normally. <laughs> because U-turns happen. Liz can win it back. You know, anyone can. There is... Two and a half years is a long time. But you've just got to put the hard graft in. We will need to see this growth plan deliver. I mean, yeah. that, that is, is absolutely crucial. And you know, people need to start you know, feeling the benefit in terms of more jobs, higher wages, rising living standards. It's as simple as that. If we're, if we're not able to deliver that, it's, it's going to be a lot more difficult to win the general election. But um, it's absolutely a winnable contest coming up. I think uh, there are all sorts of flaws in, uh, in Labour. Yeah, they're led by a man who, for years, was supporting Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister. You know, in, in many ways, Keir Starmer is still contaminated by his, his connection with the previous regime. So we will always, on the doorstep, have a good story to tell about how Conservatives are determined to to deliver a strong economy, to fund strong public services, and also at the same time give people back more of the money that uh, they earn and let them keep more of that in their pockets. I mean, I, I would, I mean, I agree with all of this. I think it is important to get the framing right, though. Uh, the next year or two is going to be extremely difficult. Whoever is in power, whatever the policy is, is going to be difficult because the world is difficult and the global economy is is problematic. And I, I would worry slightly about kind of entirely hitching our prospects to a recovery of growth in 18 months' time, because I think it may, be, it may be tricky. I think the correct framing is, is going to be difficult. There isn't, there's only so much governments can do about that. The question is, are we going to have all these difficulties and not do the things that are necessary to get us out on a different path or have them in a cause of improving things, setting the right agenda, putting us on the right path. And I think that is what Conservatives kind of stand for, difficult decisions to get the right things done. And, you know, we mustn't pretend that things can be easier than they can be. We've got to be explain why we are doing things that are necessary and can make things better, even if it isn't in 18 months time are we, eager, are we going to see you doing your bit are we going to see lord frost standing to become an mp at the next election try and help that the tories stay in power what do you think <laughs> well we'll we'll see I, I think there are there are some associations that are interested I, i've not made my mind up yet we'll see we'll see how this plays out alicia well no i was just gonna say i think that point around difficult conversations is really important because we're going into an incredibly difficult economic climate on the back of the pandemic where MPs received emails from people regularly saying, is it safe for me to go shopping? Can I go on holiday yet? Can I go and visit X person? We have become, unfortunately, incredibly dependent on the state and dependent on MPs to decide for us what we as individuals should be making about decisions for ourselves. Now, that is not an easy conversation to have, but coming for this crisis to come so close to COVID, it's incredibly difficult because people do expect, when I have conversations, for us to pay the entirety of their energy bills. People do expect that the state can solve every single crisis because we had to borrow so much money during the pandemic and spend so much money. They think that we can just do so again. 
those conversations we will not be thanked for. And that's why the pitch rolling so early, not going right, sets us back in that conversation. But if we aren't willing to have that conversation as conservatives, if we are willing to infantilise the public in the way that we know Labour will, we will not be rewarded for it in the long term. And government will become bigger and bigger and people become more dependent. And the community and the sense of community and local voices will become weaker and weaker because they will look to the centre. So that is a conversation we have to start having and it's going to be really difficult. We'll leave it there. We'll move on to questions now. My question is, do you feel that the Ukraine war has actually reset the balance between the economy and the drive for net zero? You mentioned fracking a moment ago. That's going to be one of those things that's going to really test our desire to achieve net zero or our desire to actually have a strong economy and therefore be able to play our role in the defence of the world going forward. I think we can do both. In many ways, the road to net zero won't be easy, but there are also huge economic opportunities. But it is, of course, at this time of, of huge difficulty in terms of energy prices because of the aggressive actions of the Putin regime, it, of course, shines the spotlight very firmly on our domestic supplies. And we need to, to have a much stronger focus on domestic energy security. And so I think the actions of Liz Truss and her government on that are the right ones. I don't think it compromises our ability to meet net zero, the fact that you know, we're now saying very firmly that we need to exploit those hydrocarbon deposits in the North Sea. Oil and gas are going to be our transition fuels. Even the Committee on Climate Change is, is crystal clear that you know, we will continue to need those fuels for many years to come. So it is right that we continue to throw everything we can at net zero. And the fact that, I mean, we've made incredible progress. 37% of our electricity is now in, generated by renewable sources. We'd be in a far worse position vis-a-vis -vis the Ukraine and, and Putin were it not for that net zero activity. So I take an optimistic view on this, that um, if we do it right, we can decarbonise our economy, but do it in a way which, which supports prosperity rather than holds it back. Adam Payne, political editor at Politics Home. Uh, a question for the MPs, firstly. As Conservative MPs who care deeply about the health and the success of the Tory party, how damaging do you think today's events, the infighting, the negative headlines have been? Look, have you watched the last year? I mean, it's, it's not much different. It doesn't feel much different. I think it's, um, it's an incredibly febrile place, Parliament. I think it's really disappointing and it's a very hard place to be because in any workplace there are people who don't necessarily always behave appropriately and in any workplace there are people who want to stop other people from progressing or doing well but in this workplace when you want to stymie someone or damage someone you go to the media and you play it out on the world stage and that's a very cruel thing to do it is damaging there's no question we want to see unity but I think what's a shame is the behaviour you see from colleagues in the tea room and in the chamber is completely different to what you see played out in the media and I just wish we could focus on that and ignore the media a little bit more apologies uh, and focus on, on on what we should be doing yeah well and uh, sadly I think it has been very damaging the events of today and uh, and the past few days and I hope that we can have a bit of a reset moment to get on with delivering the plan for growing the economy which is such a vital thing that we need to do Question for Lord Frost. It sounds like from speaking to both sides that the UK and the EU might be close to a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol. 
what do you think is going on there based on your observations? Do you fear that the PM might be softening some of the red lines that you yourself took into those negotiations when you were in the hot seat? I, I don't know what's going on, is the, the short answer. I, I said earlier today, I'm not quite sure how to read the various signals the government's giving out at the moment, but that's okay. Um, I don't think they're that close to an agreement. I think it's good that there is talking going on. But in my view, the only negotiated settlement that is acceptable is one which very significantly retilts the trade arrangements back towards the, the sort of normal UK with some special features, undoubtedly. But that that must be an outcome. And if they could achieve that through negotiation, that will be excellent. I'd be surprised but you never know. If they can't, we'll have to push on with the, 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 the protocol bill. So let's see how it plays out. But I think there's a bit of noise that I'm not sure is entirely justified by events just at the moment. In terms of the protocol, I, I do think there's hopefully a willingness sort of on, on all sides to try and find a way through. I would t- entirely agree with Lord Frost that tinkering won't do. We, we do need to really have a system which which genuinely secures Northern Ireland's place in the UK internal market. In theory, the protocol does that. In reality, it does not. And in particular, you know, the interpretation by the EU that the protocol means applying a, a super compliant approach to, to food and, and goods checks using the same kind of framework they apply to places, it was designed for places like Iran or Thailand or someone like that, to apply that to, you know, a packet of sausages going from Great Britain to a supermarket shelf in Northern Ireland is entirely disproportionate. That's one of the reasons why I think the protocol bill makes a lot of sense. It's, it's a relatively simple solution to have effectively a super green channel. So... If the, the goods and food that you're bringing from Great Britain to Northern Ireland isn't likely to end up in the South, then you're not affected by the protocol. And all these special arrangements, all these checks, all these veterinary certificates can be hived off to those people who are actually doing export businesses. And I think what's in the bill would certainly protect the single market and it would, I think, deal with the major concerns expressed by the unionist community. So I hope that we see ultimately, whether it's through the bill or whether it's through a negotiation, something along those lines replacing the protocol, because we, it's intolerable to carry on as we are with Northern Ireland's devolved institutions in suspension. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks very much to my panel, and uh, thanks very much for, for listening, and please subscribe if you haven't already to our wonderful podcast. Thank you.